0: You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham, delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in. Send host Stephen
1: Brittingham your comments and questions to Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. That is Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. Stephen looks forward to hearing from you soon.
0: Hello, friends and listeners. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast. And thank you for listening. I am so grateful for the opportunity to speak with my extra special guest today, Leon Isaac Kennedy. Born in Cleveland, Ohio, Leon's personal, artistic, and eventually spiritual journey would take him all the way to the lights and streets of Hollywood. Actor, screenwriter, and producer, Leon has worn many hats over the years He also left his mark in films such as Penitentiary, along with two sequels. His character, after being incarcerated for murder, finds himself on the prison's boxing team with a chance to secure early parole.
1: Been in the county jail six months. you box? Not really.
2: Why? Boxing tournament coming up. Big fun. You box? (laughs) Hell no. Half dead don't box.
1: I kill. You. You set this whole thing up. And then like the coward you are, you stood back and let your crazy fools do your dirty work.
2: Seldom, you call the lieutenant. And you tell him if he wants rumble. We'll give him
0: rumble. on! Watch Penitentiary. In 1981's Body and Soul, he co-starred with boxing legend Muhammad Ali and his former wife, Jane Kennedy. And in 1983's Lone Wolf McQuaid, his character assisted Chuck Norris in rescuing his daughter and taking down David Carradine's criminal organization. In this action-packed extravaganza, he gave a memorable performance.
1: When you're the best, you do things with style. J.J. McQuaid is the best. He's a lone wolf lawman in the Lone Star State. Howdy, Ranger. The feds, they've taken over. Marcus Jackson, FBI, Houston. McQuade, Texas Ranger. I know. I'm real sorry about your daughter, but this is a federal case. From now on, it's out of your jurisdiction. Even a wolf has his weaknesses.
2: (laughs) And a powerful enemy. Boys are just having a little fun. You want to join the fun? But even the best can't always do it alone. Pretty quiet for a fed. Oh, I make it my business. Looks like somebody doesn't like you, McQuaid. I make a few enemies here and
1: there. Yeah? So do I. What do you want, Jackson? I came to enlist your help. Get to the point.
0: I know they got a drop-off point somewhere between here and Big Ben. That's 500 square miles. Yeah, well, who knows? We might just get lucky. Bone Wolf McQuaid, starring Chuck Norris, David Carradine, Barbara Carrera, and Leon
1: Isaac Kennedy.
0: Before all of this, though, Leon was already doing some amazing things as a DJ. Known as Leon the Lover. Highly regarded, too. Leon experienced many adventures over the years. It is my utmost honor to have him reflect on his life and career today, a big honor. Leon Isaac Kennedy, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, sir.
2: Well, Steve, thank you very much. And just you mentioning all those things was bringing back a flood of memories. So i uh, at your disposal to talk about whatever angle you want to talk about.
0: Thank you, sir. It's so nice to have you here today, and I appreciate this opportunity very much. I really enjoyed learning more about your life, too, and I can't wait to discuss your DJ years that intrigued me. With being a podcast host, audio is something that's very important to me, and I just can't wait to hear your thoughts about all of that and and what you experienced along the way. Well, I thought I would ask, uh, what was it like growing up in Cleveland?
2: Well, Cleveland was a very progressive city at that particular time. I grew up in, in the 50s and then in the 60s uh, in Cleveland. And people now tend to forget that at one time, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, was uh, more progressive and actually had more wealth than Los Angeles and San Francisco. So it was a very interesting time. I am always very grateful to the city of Cleveland, but more especially to the people of Cleveland at that particular time because they gave me my roots, they gave me opportunities, and everything started there. So I'm very grateful to the people.
0: I was not aware uh, about that regarding Cleveland, so that's very interesting. Well, what did you like to do for fun while you were growing up, Leon? Was there any activities or things that you liked to do in particular?
2: Well, I was always uh, a person that was the outdoor type. I loved going into the woods and hiking and camping and things of that nature. I was uh, a member of the Cub Scouts and then the Boy Scouts and even made the highest achievement in Boy Scouts, which is uh, becoming an Eagle Scout. So
1: Very and, impressive.
2: Uh, then, then went to Phil Mountain, New Mexico, which was the dream of all Boy Scouts. It was a uh, a mecca to, to go there and camp out for uh, two weeks um, in, in those woods with scouts from all across the country. So those are the things that I like.
0: Oh, wow. That, that, that is very impressive. I, I have to ask, I hope you don't mind, that is amazing to be able to go out there. But, I mean, what about snakes? Was that something that was <laughs> a, a concern for, for you?
2: Well, you know, when you're outdoors, uh, you just deal with everything. We, we not only dealt with snakes, we dealt with bear oh. uh, and, and, and mountain lion and bobcats and so on and so forth. So um, it was always an adventure. I'll put it that way.
0: I'm sure it was. Well, before I ask you about how you even became a DJ and, and also your thoughts on how being a DJ at that time... Uh, Leon, I really enjoyed learning that it was quite the status. You know, we live in a time maybe where people may have forgotten that or or just aren't aware of that, but I was very impressed with the the status you achieved as a DJ. You must have been very good, but I'm very curious, when you were growing up, did you like to go to the movies a lot? And if you did, was there certain kind of movies that you liked to go see in particular?
2: Well, Steve, I have always been a movie buff. Uh, Unfortunately, when I was growing up, there were not that many opportunities to see all the great films like you can do now. Now you can think of any film you ever want to see, any film that was ever done, and you can dial it up and see it. When I was growing up, we're talking about there were only three television stations. You know, now you have thousands of channels. Back then, there were only three stations, and they signed off at about twelve midnight. And you would get the uh, the um, American flag, A- American flag, <laughs> and, and the and the Star Spangled Banner, and yes. then you get the the fuzziness. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's well, right. <laughs> if you fell asleep. <laughs>
2: Yeah, you'd wake up to the present wondering if you were in the Twilight Zone or something. (laughs) Um, And we're off the air until tomorrow at 7 a.m. So broadcasting has changed so much. And you had a couple channels that showed old movies from time to time, but you didn't really get to see that many. Um, So it was always a treat when those films came on. And you would be able to explore the movies of the 30s and and the 40s, which were my favorite era when it came to filmmaking. You know, they say that 1939 was Hollywood's golden era, still not surpassed even today with the great films that came out that particular year. Uh, So I've always liked the movies. I've been influenced by that era and by those actors and actresses. And it was um, a, a delight to be introduced to those films. What has happened since then is I have become what they call a film historian. And for many years, I would meet once a week with the greatest film historians from uh, around the world, and we would look at old movies and compare notes and talk about the backstories of particular films and what was happening on the set with, when those films were being done and how they came about even being executed uh, in development and so on and so forth. So it, it's just fascinating, the, the history of um, film and, and how certain films came into play.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I enjoyed listening to what you had to say very much.
2: Let me tell you how the this jockey situation came about. So I was always going to be a doctor, um, and it was pretty well understood in the household that, you know, Leon is going to be a doctor. I was uh, fairly intelligent and did well in school, usually a straight-A student, National Merit Scholarship winner, honor student, et cetera, et cetera. And I wanted to help people. So I was on the track to be a doctor. And then when I was in the 10th grade, in, oh, a month, everything changed. Uh, Being part of the pre-med club, we went to a hospital. And the hospital seemed a little depressing you know hospitals sometimes have a certain smell to them and it was just more depressing than I thought it would be and at that particular month I was also in a school play and enjoyed it and then I read Errol Flynn's book his autobiography and Errol Flynn was always my hero as far as an actor now I, I like Sidney Poitier. Um, there were not that many black actors to even look at, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but Errol Flynn was bigger than life. He was a buckler and so on and so forth. And I said, you know, I want to be like him, a, a, a bigger-than-life persona, and um, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Now, I never did the drugs, and the heavy drinking that Earl Flynn did, but as far as trying to learn to be charming and uh, party all across the world and and have fun in life, um, I I was on that course. Now, being realistic, we're talking about in the 60s now. There were very few blacks on television, much less in the movies, and Steve, much less light-skinned blacks. So I said, okay, not much opportunity here. I'm going to have to build my own opportunity. So how do I do that? So my plan in the 10th grade was, I know, I'll become a disc jockey. I'll become a large, on-the-air personality. And from there, I'll get my own TV show. And once I get my own TV show, from there... I'll backdoor it and do movies. So I started working on that plan Steve, from the time I was in the 10th grade. And when I go out and speak at uh, colleges and, and if I talk to young people, I always say to them, do you have a plan for your life? And so many times I say to someone, what do you want to be? And they say, well, I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. Where do you want to go in life? Well, I don't know yet. And I said, well, you have a good chance of being that. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Because if you don't have a plan, then you don't have a roadmap to your life. So therefore, you don't know where you're going. It's like it's from to go from Cleveland to Chicago. There's a roadmap how to get there. If not, you're, you're not traveling. Uh, in the right direction you want to go west but you're traveling south or whatever the case might be you've got to have a plan for your life so that was my plan and I worked that plan because I always tell people that um, positive prayer brings about positive action, which brings about positive results there's a big difference between um, having an idle daydream about of people have dreams, but they don't put any energy into it. Well, that's just an idle daydream versus a dream that you meditate on and think about and pray about and work on, on a daily basis. So working on this plan, I hung out at the radio station, um, not at the beginning. It wasn't that easy. Uh, and because we only have about 45 minutes, I'm, I'm just skimming for you. But, um, as a 15 year old kid, I went down to the radio station and that's another of my teaching points is whatever you want to be in life, you have to, you have to hang around those people. If you want to be a doctor, then don't hang around plumbers. Now, I'm not knocking plumbers. Plumbers make right. a lot of money. If you want if you want to be a plumber, then don't hang around accountants. In other words, you've got to be around the people that are doing it. So if you want to be a doctor, then hang around some people that are already in pre-med school, and you can learn from them and, and, and start your journey by learning from people that are already at where you want to eventually get to. So I went down to the radio station and uh, sat there for two, three hours, waiting to see the program director, very busy man. And finally, after about three hours, as he was walking out of his office to another part of the studio, I had my chance, and I ran up to him, and I said, sir, may I speak to you for a moment? He said, what do you want, kid? And I said, I want to be a disc jockey. And he looked at me and he laughed. He said, everybody wants to be a disc jockey kid. And he walked away. And I ran up to him, Steve, because I learned early in life not to just take no as an answer. I ran up to him and I said, but, sir, if you let me hang around you so I can try to be like you, I'll work for you for free. So, Steve, that sort of shocked him. He said, you'll work for me for free. I said, yes, sir, whatever you want, I'll take out the trash i'll run errands i'll be the gopher whatever you want me to do i'll do i just want to be able to hang around and watch and and maybe you'll help me eventually so i think it shocked him steve he said you'll work for me for free i said yes sir he said be here tomorrow at nine o'clock in the morning i said yes sir (laughs) and so (laughs) wow that that began the journey i was there that next morning um at 8.30, so I could be on time. He said 9, I was there at 8.30. And that whole summer, I did whatever they wanted me to do, but I also was tuning my ear into how they sounded, how they spoke over records, how they read the news, how they uh, broke down certain syllables as they were speaking. And... I learned things. I learned speech phonetics. I I learned what they call standard American English. Um, That's what they wanted you to have when you read the news. They didn't want you to have a a dialect. Um, So it was a learning process. But long story short, eventually I became one of the youngest disc jockeys in the history of Cleveland, Ohio. And that's how I started. Wow,
0: that's very impressive. You you made it happen. You made it happen, and I really admired that. Thank you for sharing that. I find that to be very inspirational. W- what was it like to be a DJ during that time?
2: Well, I have to paint a whole historic arc for you and your listeners because it was quite different then than it is now. Unfortunately, formatted radio has now come in And you have, like, uh, one company maybe owning 20, 30 different stations. And they format it, and they want everything to just be the same. And they want the disc jockeys to basically just say time and temperature and be part of a format. Now, you do have some exceptions with the syndicated radio morning shows where, you know, these people have become personalities, and, and that's why they're able to syndicate their show. But for the most part, you don't have personalities anymore in radio. I was fortunate to be in that last wave of the big-time radio personalities. And I'm talking about... Uh, if you're talking about a white jock, Cousin Brucey, and Alan Freed and people of, of that caliber that rude their cities, if we're talking, uh, black, we're talking Martha Jean the Queen in Detroit, Michigan, Frantic Ernie Durham, uh, the wonderful Mike Payne in Cleveland, Walsh Allen in Cleveland and now still in Houston, Texas. Uh, Rufus Thomas, people know him as a singer from, on Stax Records, but he started off as a big time disc jockey out of Memphis, Tennessee. So these were big time personalities, and when you were a, a jock, you had maybe two, three million people listening to you every day or every night. If you said, "Hey, at ten o'clock, I want everybody to honk their horn," the whole city was honking their <laughs> horns. So yeah. you really, you really ruled your city. You had so influence. It, Oh yeah, you, you you certainly had influence. Back then the big disc jockey was bigger than any bigger than the sports star. Because in football you might have had one star that was known um, throughout the nation or really known a lot in that particular city. But certainly you didn't have the platform that a football or a basketball player has now. You know, now you have 24-hour um, talk radio. Uh, now you have 24-hour sports networks. And so 24 hours, they've got to come up with things. So, therefore, they pay a lot more attention to uh, a, a sports NFL NBA player or whatever the case might be nowadays with, with these players, you, they have their own Twitter account. They have their own following, but none of that existed back then. Uh, as a matter of fact, sports was talked about mainly on the daily news and, you know, you had a five seven minute segment that talked about sports compared to 24 hours a day now with several sports networks. So it was a big, big difference. I'm just pointing it out to your listeners because uh, you have to understand the historic arc. So the disc jockey, the big time DJ, was the ruler of that particular city uh, and bigger than the sports uh, personality. So later, I morphed into being Leon the Lover. So we're talking about branding before you even had the term branding. Um and as Leon the lover, I was number one in my time slots. In big time markets, Steve, um started in Cleveland, Ohio, well Cleveland was a lot bigger, top five city back then, then in Detroit, Michigan, then in uh, Washington DC and Houston, Texas, and then finally out here in Los Angeles. And by the way, when I was in Detroit, Motown was still there. So because Smokey Robinson has always been like my big brother since the time I was 15 and best friend since the time I was 15, uh, I was introduced to all of the Motown people. So I I met the Barry Gordy and the... Stevie Wonder used to come to my house, and when I would have certain nights at, at clubs, Stevie would come to the club, and, um, you know, I went horseback riding with David Ruffin of the Temptations, and,
1: wow. you know,
2: uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips, and Diana and the Supremes. I could go on and on and on, but I was friends with all of these people.
0: That's amazing. And I was
2: only, And I was only 18 years old, <laughs> so <laughs> it was a wonderful atmosphere. For a young guy to grow up in.
0: Where did the name Leon the Lover come from? Did you create that?
2: I created it uh, because as a personality you you, you needed, you know, a, a name. But it also came about because I would do a show called Leon's Lover's Lane. And Leon's Lover's Lane, I would have a old, well, I would have a theme song, and I would purposely play old, golden nuggets, as we call them, older records to help answer uh, letters, love letters. So I would be like the Dear Abby of radio. Now, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with. Your listeners here, so they maybe don't even know who Dear Abby was. But Dear Abby was um, a syndicated columnist that people would write in with their various problems and, and Dear Abby, so and so and so and so, on, and she'd answer. So I would get letters, thousands of letters per week of people talking to me about their love problems. And I would read their letters and then answer, and then answer it by playing certain records. And it was so popular uh, that they said, because I'd come on at night, and they would say that when Leon Lover's Lane was on, it had more people listening to that than Johnny Carson had watching the Johnny Carson show. Uh, One night... In Detroit, it was a hot summer night, and I had recorded my show. So because I had recorded it, it was on, but I was out that particular night because I had a club appearance to to make. And my window was down, and I decided I'm just going to drive through some of the neighborhoods. And my window was down, and back then on a hot summer night, a lot of people their windows would be down, or other people would be on their porch, even with their radios on. Gladys Knight used to say, hey, Leon, I and my cousins, her cousins were the pips, Gladys Knight and the pips, would sit out on the porch and listen to Lovers Lane every night. So anyway, that particular night, I'm driving through the city, and I'm hearing Leon's Lovers Lane off through the neighborhoods. uh, I'm hearing cars with their window down and they've got their radio on listening to Leon's Lover's Lane and I, I had to laugh I said well I'm more popular than I thought I was <laughs> <laughs> uh, but to tell you how this that came into being I was always a writer and I always uh, wrote poetry and I always was a thinker and put thoughts into my writing and This particular year, it was a heavy year because Martin Luther King was gunned down. And then shortly after that, Robert Kennedy was gunned down. And I was sitting in the studio and I said, boy, we've been set back 100 years. In humanity, by losing JFK and then losing Martin, Reverend Martin Luther King, and then by losing Robert Kennedy. It has set humanity back a hundred years. And I was very sad, uh, tears coming down my eyes that particular night. And I played, I think it was Dusty Springfield, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. And Excellent then I started other other songs, and I put these string of songs together, and that's how Lover's Lane started off. And then it, it morphed into, like I said, answering letters with people's love lives. So some nights it was about your love life, other nights it was more philosophical about the world. I remember uh, playing Society's Child, and I'm trying to think of the artist's name. I forgot her name now, but uh, Society's Child was basically this white woman talking about loving a black man. And then I played Bobby Womax, not Bobby, um, Bobby Taylor. Does your mama know about me? Does she know what I am? Um, why can't she just accept me as a man? Because he was, you know, singing to a white girl and he was a black man. Uh, then I would play something like Curtis Mayfield's Minstrel and Queen. Queen Majesty, may I speak to thee? I'm just a minstrel, and you're a queen. I'm not of your society. Uh, And it would be philosophical about the barriers when it came to the heart and when it came to love. So you got me reminiscing, Steve. (laughs)
0: Well, I am so grateful that that you are doing so. I really appreciate it. I did look up Society's Child, and I cannot take credit. I did look it up for you, and I uh, have come up with Janice, is it Eon? Yeah. And I just wanted to share that with you. Thank you. Well, I I just tell you what, I was just riveted with all that you had to say, and uh, you stirred my heart when you were uh, reminiscing about uh, Martin Luther King and and Robert and John. So, thank you for that. I'm very curious how did the transition to acting take place, w- considering that you are being so successful as a DJ?
2: Well, let's remember that I had a plan. So, I was That's working right. on that and, and the plan was okay. Now you're a DJ, now you're a big time personality, that's step one. Now you gotta get your own TV show. So, by age 19, I did have my own TV show. Um, it was a show called Tina I'm in Washington, D.C. by then. And it was like a, a black version of perhaps American bandstand. Oh, and wow. we had different, different artists come on and um, black teenagers having a chance to be on TV and participate rather than just sit at home and see all the white faces that were on American Bandstand. So um, that opened up opportunities. I think it was also very important for the self-esteem of the young uh, black teenagers that were on the show and also that viewed the show to to show that, yeah, you know, we we have uh, our own identity and here's who we are and here's what we do. And this was before Soul Train. Um, so we, I had that show. And then later, I and Mike Payne did a show called Out of Sight, O U T T A S I G H T. And Out of Sight was a version of maybe Laughing that had the musical, what I call comedic quickies, in other words, quick vignettes. Laughing was a very fast paced show uh, with a lot of quick vignettes and then some comedy sketches. So we had that mixed in with music guests that would come on and music videos. Music videos were just starting back then. We're talking now, 1969, 1970. So uh, we did that show, and it became one of the first black syndicated shows in the nation. Uh, once again, this was before Soul Train. As a matter of fact. If you think of in living color, 20 years before in living color, that's what Out of Sight was.
0: Ahead of its time.
2: You know, uh, I, I might say, unfortunately, I was always ahead of my time because being a pioneer or being a visionary is not always a great thing because you're ahead of your time, you see things. Uh, before other people see it, so therefore they don't necessarily accept it. It was always very hard for me to sell my concepts and and to get my concepts uh, on the air or whatever the case might be. As a matter of fact, the, the great Barry Gordy said to me once, you know, Leon, you are quite a pioneer in everything. He said, but unfortunately, the pioneers don't reap the benefits. He said, the pioneers usually are the ones that opened up the trails, but they were the ones that got ambushed <laughs> along the way. That, that's Other people
0: true. Yes. <laughs>
2: from, from what they did. So uh, that was unfortunately the course that uh, that I was on because things have opened up tremendously since then for for minorities, but not so much at the time when when I was doing it.
0: Well, that's... That's very unfortunate that, that that was even the situation. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm wondering because of the first films that you did that, I mean, as far as really having an impact on your career, were boxing related. So, did you have a natural interest in boxing? Uh, it just happened that
2: way. However, there might be some family dna in there I
1: uh, and i
2: say that i say that because and and i'll share this with your with your listening audience i really had two fathers i had a my natural father leon kennedy died when i was only a few days old, so I never got to meet him. My father that raised me was John Isaac. So I always say I had two fathers. One gave me life, and then the other one gave me love all of my life. So that's why I have the compounded name, Leon Isaac Kennedy, to give honor to both families. So I say that because Leon Kennedy, who was going to be a doctor and was earning his way through med school, to earn his way through med school, he became a professional fighter. And I would hear about, you know, from the Kennedy side of the family, yeah, you know, your father was a professional fighter. He was pretty good. You know, people thought he could be the next Sugar Ray Robinson, et cetera, et cetera. So when my uncle saw me fighting on the screen, he said, you remind me so much of your father. You remind me so much of, your, of my brother, Leon, uh, in, in the way you move and so on and so forth uh, in the boxing ring. So um, that's a little maybe uh, DNA there. I must also say, that I was good friends with the great, the greatest of all time, <laughs> Muhammad Ali. And Ali were and I were wonderful, wonderful friends. And so I would be able to go to all his fights and uh, go to his training camp and get up early in the morning and jog with him as he was doing his road work and uh, was at the thrill in Manila Uh, uh, while he was training for that, uh, you know, very famous fight with Joe Frazier and so on and so forth. So many wonderful moments with Muhammad Ali. And um, so he was a big influence on the style that I picked. As a matter of fact, he helped to train me um, for those fight pictures.
0: And then he appeared in Body and Soul. What was it like to work with him on screen?
2: he did a very special favor to me as an independent filmmaker by being the biggest personality in the world at that time and agreed to come and, and be in my, in my film. Um, what was it like, Steve? It was a great, great honor. As a matter of fact, what they call the dailies or the rushes when you're a filmmaker and you're sitting looking at what you had shot, filmed the day before, just to make sure that everything has come out properly and so on and so forth. And then you may be sitting with your editor and you'll be saying to him, out of these three takes, take uh, let's use take two or whatever the case might be. So that particular day, seeing myself, I'm looking, seeing myself in the ring with Ali. The greatest of all time, and Jane was sitting there with me, and I said, "Look at that! Look at that! I'm I'm in the ring! I'm in the ring with Muhammad Ali! <laughs> Boy, this is something that we can. i This is something we can show our grandchildren." <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that's how excited I was to have been on screen with Ali, and let me just. Um, take a side journey for a moment. Sure. The reason that I gravitated to movies more so than just television shows or plays is because the great thing about cinema is it lasts forever. And as I said, for example, Errol Flynn, when I discovered Errol Flynn, he was already dead. Or if I watched Casablanca, or whatever the case might be, great films, or Orson Welles with Citizen Kane, or now this generation could could watch uh, Barry Gordy's Lady Sings the Blues, and you know just many things that are captured forever, and so that's why I gravitated to film. So even now, Ali's gone. Bless his heart. But even now, people can enjoy that film and see a younger version of me and a younger version of Muhammad Ali in body and soul. And when you do a classic, those classic films last longer than you do. So that's why I gravitated to films.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. And just a quick note on penitentiary, that actually made a decent amount at the box office, from what I understand.
2: Well, more than decent, it became the number one independent film of the year, the year it was released. And not number one black film, but number one independent film, period, which was quite an honor, Uh, quite a very, very prestigious achievement. That's like winning uh, an NBA championship or winning a Super Bowl, especially when you are a minority filmmaker, number one. Number two, once again, giving you a historic perspective, this was, we're talking, the film came out in 1980. So the so-called black exploitation era had already come and gone and at that point things had dried up and they weren't doing quote so-called black films anymore so I remember when we were doing that film people were saying to me Leon I don't even understand why you're doing this people don't go to see black films anymore uh, The theater chains aren't going to play it And I said, well, I'm doing it to prove that I'm a black leading man. And Jamal's doing it to prove that he is uh, the director of major motion pictures. And sure enough, Steve, when we finished that film, nobody wanted it. No exhibitor wanted it. The theater Mm -hmm. chains didn't want it. Uh, But I've never been one to take no for an answer. And we kept pushing, pushing, pushing. And we finally found a guy that booked theaters and I said to him, if you can just get us in a couple theaters, I believe that the people will resonate to this. He said, well, you know, we don't have that much money, Leon. I said, I'll tell you what, book it in Detroit. I was a big-time disc jockey in Detroit. Book it in Detroit, and I'll go in there, and I'll promote it. Because there, there was no marketing budget. I said, I'll promote it. And so... um I've spent my own money, flew into Detroit, booked myself on the different radio stations to do interviews, booked myself on uh, various TV stations to do interviews. And we did a lot of what we called the grassroots promoting, driving by the high schools and giving out leaflets and driving by college campuses, putting out leaflets about the movie and Sure enough, when that movie hit that opening weekend, after the first screening, there were lines around the block. And the rest, as they say, is history.
0: The rest is history. (laughs) What a story. Well, let me tell you, Leon, how I first saw you. And this will uh, take us to Lone Wolf McQuaid. You know, growing up in the 80s, You know, you talked earlier about just when there was a time with just three networks. Well, when cable was in its early days, in very early days, we got Cinemax. And that's when I discovered the film Lone Wolf McQuaid. It totally mesmerized me. And one of the things that I liked about the film was that it had this really, you know, majestic music, emotional music even, epic music and it just had uh, very interesting characters and and a whole bunch of action of course. I really enjoyed your character, but Leon I have to tell you, if memory serves me right, your character sure did take quite a beating in that film. (laughs) I mean, but he well, kept on going. I could be wrong, but was it your character that was shot twice? He recovered, and then he got shot again?
2: Well, I was going to say, he took more than a beating. He, he took a shooting. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Several shootings. Yeah, you know, what happened, uh, the character originally was supposed to die, and um, so when he was shot... He wasn't necessarily supposed to come back. But the chemistry was so great between Chuck and I that they started thinking, well, there could be a sequel or maybe there should be a TV series. Now, you know, Walker, Texas Ranger actually ended up being a spinoff from Bone with McQuaid. That's a different story. But as far as... The character being shot they said well they decided later well let's not kill him Let's let's have him just come back so you know the, the character if you're looking at the film he sort of comes back as a shock to everybody <laughs> and that's after the powers <laughs> to be said no 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 you gotta you gotta bring him back so that's how that happened
0: He just kept on going. I'll tell you, I I just, I remember just how I was so on edge. Like, I just don't think this guy's going to make it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Neither did I.
0: Well, what was it like working with Chuck? Who in this film, Leon, I've often reminded people, you're a very knowledgeable man about cinema. You know, I remind people that Chuck really hadn't spoken a lot in his prior films. I mean, very similar to Clint Eastwood. Uh, And this film, as far as I remember, this was one of the first ones where he actually had a lot of dialogue.
2: Yeah, well, several things here. Chuck made his uh, big debut fighting Bruce Lee in one of the Bruce Lee films and then took off from there. And Chuck was a real champion uh, when it came to, to martial arts. So... Chuck's career took off from the Bruce Lee film and you know, he just kept doing more and more and more. As far as a person, Chuck is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Uh, Just very down to earth, very humble, uh, just a a lovely personality. And I enjoyed being around him so much. Uh, We would work out together in the morning, um and it's interesting because Bruce Lee was one of my heroes now by the time i discovered bruce he had already passed on but i remember going to one of those 99 cent theaters back at the time and they were showing three bruce lee films Because a friend of mine said to me, oh, you're not hip to Bruce Lee? I said, no. She said, you got to come. She said, I love Bruce Lee. You got to come. So I I went and watched. And Steve, I got to tell you, I was mesmerized. You know, you have certain things that impact your life. Me watching Bruce Lee changed part of my life. Because at that point, and this is before I started doing the films, at that point, I was a, a, a skinny kid. Uh, I've always been thin, but I was skinny at that point. And um, when I saw the rips, the, the cuts, the, the muscle tone that this man had, I said, I'm going to have a body like that. And I, I went to a gym the next day and signed up. And and they always ask, you know, well, what are you trying to do? And I said, I, I'm trying to look like Bruce Lee. that's what I And they put Thank me you. on a very strict routine of a um, very strict diet and, you know, very, very Herculean workout structure. And I stuck to it. And that's why later in, in those subsequent films that you saw of me, You saw the cuts. You saw the muscle tone and so on and so forth. It all came about from me watching and wanting to emulate Bruce Lee. When I saw him go up that rope, just hand over hand with his legs straight out and saw that type of uh, arm strength, I said, this is one of the greatest athletes I've ever seen. If if he was still alive, I would have flown into San Francisco to to train with him. But like I said, he he had already passed on. So Chuck, having known Bruce, would tell me Bruce Lee stories as we worked out. Well, guess who his hero was? His hero was Muhammad Ali. Me, being great friends with Ali, I would tell Chuck Ali stories. So we had a, a great time as we worked
0: up. how ironic I mean that kind of connection <laughs> that that is something else well I would love your personal opinion about something uh, well this is like a two-part question the first is did you have any actual interaction with David Carradine and second of all the ending of Lone Wolf McQuaid you know to me, is one of the more epic conclusions to an action film in in cinema history. At least it should be on the list. The thing that I like about it is that David gets his licks in, too, uh, of course, uh, knowing karate as well, and it was very suspenseful and dramatic. Um, I just wanted to know what your thoughts was on the ending of the film as far as that goes, the confrontational scene. Sure. Well, first of all,
2: in knowing David, uh, and of course, we, we did spend time together during the making of that film that took place in El Paso, Texas. When you're on location, you become a little unit to one another, the, the actors, the crew, and so on and so forth. When you're on location, uh, that particular time we were on location for about eight weeks. So you get to know each other fairly well, and uh, David had already had, of course, a great success with the Kung Fu series. So, one of the things that David had said was, I I don't want to lose the fight. Why should I lose the fight? You know, I'm I'm the one that had um, the long-going series. I was a hero. And then, uh, of course, Chuck's not going to lose the fight. (laughs) because he he won the fight in all his movies. So the writers and the directors had to work out some type of compromise as to how this whole thing could come to a conclusion and save face for each of these foes here. As far as the ending, the ending was set up so that perhaps you could have this sequel and there was supposed to be a sequel; it just never came about.
0: I never heard of that before. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. That kind of explains some of that, and it also explains maybe why they gave David's character, you know, you know, he had a, like he was getting the upper hand a few times during that confrontational scene. But I'm glad mm-hmm. that happened because, to me, it made it more realistic and. As a viewer, you just ask yourself, you know, oh my goodness, you know, which way is this going to go? So I, I really like that approach. Well, thank you for sharing that. And one more question on working on Lone with McQuaid, before we conclude with your, you know, journey on the spiritual side of your life. Did you ever have any encounters with LQ Jones?
2: Yes. So once again, now being. Uh, a film historian, LQ. He knew all the Western stars and all the Western stunt people. Um, And so it was just like going to school to sit with LQ and hear him reminisce and hear him tell stories.
0: Well, I really appreciate your stories, Leon, so much. Um, I feel just so fortunate to have you as a guest.
2: Let me, let me, uh, let me, let me uh, share something with you, because you, yes, you reminded me of something, and it's probably not on your list of, of questions, but I think it would be quite interesting to you and your your audience. In talking about uh, having other people share and, and learning from them, I did a film that really did not get shown that much, and I don't think it turned out to be that good of a film, but on paper, it certainly sounded interesting. And that was called Off the Skeleton Coast. So Off the Skeleton Coast starred Ernest Borgnine, Robert Vaughn, a very famous British actor, whose name is escaping me at the moment, maybe you can look it up as we're talking, Uh, and myself. Sure. So when they talked to me about being in this film, it sounded great. You know, it was like a great uh, cast, and I was very interested, and we filmed it over in, in Africa. So with Robert Vaughn, of course, Robert had starred in Magnificent Seven. You know, Robert later was known for being the star of The Man from U.N.C.L.E., but as far as his TV career, a uh, Man from U.N.C.L.E. Was, was his hit series, but as far as movies, boy, I loved The Magnificent Seven, one of my favorite films. So I would pick Robert's brain about Magnificent Seven. Robert, you know, one of my favorite films. How did... Tell me about it. And I'll just share a a couple interesting He said, you know, please do. And here's how this came about. We didn't have a complete script as we were doing off the skeleton coast. So I was a little concerned as to you know, being a writer. I was a little concerned about what do we have? Do we have the makings of a, of a good film here? I always believe if it's not on the page, it doesn't make the stage. And Robert was saying, "Well, Leon, don't don't worry yet." He said, because when we were doing uh, the Seven, he said, we, we never had a script. He said we would just get pages put under our hotel door um, the night before the next day, and you know that was what we were supposed to do the next day. He said, and it came out pretty good. I said, yeah, yeah, it did. So he was also sharing with me, you know, you had an all-star cast in Magnificent Seven. You had James Colburn. You, you had um, uh, Steve McQueen. You had Yul Brenner uh, I could go on and on and on. And he was telling me how the different egos and the different actors were bucking and rivaling one another for stage presence or trying to outdo one another in certain scenes so it was very very interesting the, the anecdote that he shared with me so I said all that to say that it's always interesting to get the backdrop from others on a particular film
0: well I appreciate that thank you for sharing that story uh, are you the character you're referring to is it the character of Captain David Simpson Oliver Reed
2: Oliver Reed is the famous British actor gotcha. that i Yeah.
0: Well, I really appreciate you sharing your memories of your career and your life. Um, I'm looking forward to learning about your um, journey on the spiritual side and what you have to say about that at this time.
2: Yes, well, the spiritual journey came as a surprise, actually. I'm a person that when I was a young person, if someone said, do you believe in God? I would have said, yes. Do you believe in, uh, that there's a Jesus? I would have said yes. But I was not, um, a regular church goer. And I know that at one point when I was a teenager, I was hungry to find out more on the spiritual side, but I went to many, many different churches, the Baptist Church, Catholic Church, Episcopalian Church, even Jewish Synagogue, and I couldn't quite find God, at least at that time, and I I was uh, searching. So I said all that, Steve, to say that I certainly was open to going further, but I was not a average churchgoer on a routine basis. And then when I was doing a film in the Philippines, uh, one of the first films I ever did actually called, where they changed the name many times, but I think that one of the working titles is uh, Death Force. that uh, starred... Jim, you know when when you do a lot, names keep escaping you. Jim James Eichelhart.
0: Gotcha. Uh, That's very understandable.
2: Was the star, Our former wife Jane Kennedy, and myself, and Carmen Argentiano. So we're in the Philippines doing this film, and one day. James is talking to me, and he said, you know, Leon, the Spirit of God is all over you. Are you, uh, are you born again? I didn't know what that phrase meant. So then uh, I said, what does that mean? He said, it means that you've asked Jesus to come into your life to be your Savior. I said, no, I, I have not done that. He said, well, would you like to? And I said, yes. So I prayed that prayer, and that was the beginning of this great spiritual journey. Now, it's very interesting. I said to you earlier in this interview that Smokey Robinson has always been like my big brother and best friend in life. So when I came back from the Philippines, and we were gone about two months, but we used to stay at Smokey and Claudette's house when we would come into town and visit with them because we'd end up talking till late at night and we lived way out in Pasadena, so it was a long drive back. So many times we'd end up spending the night there. So this particular time we went to visit them after coming back from the Philippines and Smoky said, hey Leon, I got something to tell you. And uh, we go off privately and talk and he said, you know, about a month ago, he said, I heard this voice And it said, Smokey, I want you to know me better and tell your friends about me. He said, and it was was God. And I said, Smoke, I have become what they call born again. And after I said that prayer, asking the Lord to come into my life, that's what I heard inside my spirit saying, I want you to know me better and tell your friends about me. So he said, wow, what should we do about this? And we said, well, maybe we should uh, invite other people to your house maybe once a month. And we just sit around and talk about God. So within several weeks, there were 50 to 70 entertainers that would come by Smokey's home and we would talk about God. And we were just baby Christians at that time, you know, not knowing too much of anything but certainly with hearts open and certainly searching. And one thing grew to another. Now it's an interesting journey, Steve, because this spiritual journey it's not always an easy journey. You would think that when you give your life to the Lord, you've got it made. But people don't talk about spiritual attacks. They don't talk about that there is a dark side, and that dark side certainly doesn't want you telling the world about Jesus and this is the way to go and so on and so forth. So, no one told us about these attacks that might come. Well, attacks did come, and within a very short period of time, I was divorced. Smokey was divorced, and that whole core group, things weren't going well. So it took a little time to figure things out, but I did figure out that there's a spiritual side and the light, and there is this dark side that is always fighting against one, and you have to be aware of that, and you have to, Learn how to do what I call spiritual warfare, and have strategic prayers that will help a person to learn and grow and navigate and so on and so forth. So it became a, a a journey. Now at the beginning, all I wanted to do is quote make heaven. Try and be a good and decent person. I didn't want to go any further than that. I didn't want to get too heavy. Didn't want to be a Jesus freak or anything else that got or that, or that went too far well the lord had other plans and he kept pulling me deeper and deeper and i kept falling more in love with him and more in love with him but at the same time running because i wanted my own life i wanted this career that i had worked so hard for But I've come to the conclusion that if the Lord wants you to do something, you're pretty much going to end up doing it. If not, (laughs) you're going to have a life that is not a great life until you finally humble yourself and say, okay, Lord, you got my attention. (laughs) What is it that you want me to do? And so I reached that point in my life. And basically the Lord said, I, I want you for me. And so I left Hollywood. Uh, At that time, I had an agent and a manager. At that time, I was a pretty big name in the business. And everything was going great. And yet, I said to the agent and manager, um, not going to do anything else for a while. They said, well, how long? I said, I don't know. Well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going into ministry. So, you know, needless to say, your Hollywood friends think that you've gone crazy uh, because they don't understand when you have a pull of God on your life. So that started this great journey. And I must tell you, Steve, that the journey has been very rewarding on a spiritual basis when you can just be an instrument for the Lord and see lives change, uh, where you can be used to help people, where you can be used to speak words of wisdom or encouragement, or life changing words, spiritual words, into a person's life. And I have seen many, many lives changed the Lord has blessed this ministry to have a, what is called a deliverance ministry where you can pray on people and and get the dark forces off of them or out of them I have been flown into churches all around the country all around the world to to minister and the journey is still ongoing
0: well I have to say that I am so grateful that you spent so much time with me today. I learned so much about you, and 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 my admiration and respect towards you is is just has only heightened. And uh, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for uh, spending so much time with me today.
2: Well, Steve, it's it's been my pleasure. As I told you when we were talking about mounting this interview, I was impressed with your professionalism and also the sincerity and the enthusiasm that you have for what you're doing. one can tell that you take it very, very seriously and you have a great uh, passion for it. And I, I always admire people's passions. I will conclude by saying this, that I never knew if I was going to come back to Hollywood to do anything because Once you give your life to the Lord, you just don't know. You're in his hands and in his flow. But about two and a half years ago, he put in my spirit, Leon, I want you to always continue to do ministry, but now I want you to come back uh, to Hollywood and use that platform and use the skills that I have given you as a writer, producer, actor. And I want you to do transformational films. So Steve, these are films or shows or documentaries have a motivational point to them. They have an inspirational point to them. Uh, you take, let's say the movie Creed. To me, that's a transformational film. It's a film where you saw somebody fight against the odds and overcome obstacles and win and succeed. So we're mounting up to do films and TV shows of that nature, as I said, transformational films. So that's been very exciting, and people will hear about some of the things that we're getting ready to do in the very near future, and as I said, and of course, we still will always do ministry.
0: Well, thank you, sir, once again. And let me just conclude by saying, you mentioned earlier that cinema lasts forever. Even if it's decades and decades ago, it, it lives on. And you gave examples of that. And, and I just wanted to say that, that your work lives on. And now the impact you have on others, you know, through your ministry, that's going to continue to live on. And I have to tell you that you've really inspired me more than I can possibly express right now. And I hope that that will live on as well. So I, I thank you so much. Can can I share one last story with you? You You sure can. Go right ahead. I'll add it in.
2: You reminded me of something that lasts forever. In ministry, now we're going back over 20 years ago. I was at a drug rehab center, and I met a person named Robert. And Robert was very, very talented. He read a lot of poems to me. And I said, you know, Robert, you are so talented. What are you you doing here in this drug rehab? He said, well, Leon, he said, this is my third time. He said, I'm okay when I'm here. He said, but when I get back to the streets, I fall again. And I said, well, you need a challenge. I said, what do you want to do? He said, well, I I want to do my plays and I want to, uh, you know, have the plays mounted and I want to do TV shows. And I said, well, you know, what you need to do a, get hired as an actor, I said, you need um, a Screen Actors Guild card or, or some type of union card. I said, and they're hard to get. I said, but I'll tell you what. If you come out and stay clean and sober, I'll help you. Now, this is an honor system because I don't know what you're doing when you're out, but I want you to call me once a month and you tell me. So he did that. And, you know, Leanna made 30 days. Leanna made 60 days. Then, oh, man, I fell. Okay, Robert, start again. So we went through this for about six months. And then finally, it stuck. And so I kept my end of the bargain, and I helped him. And he ended up doing plays, and he ended up getting some of his plays uh, mounted and played across the country. And then... He ended up working for an Arab prince, and his name is now Robert, and he's in charge of some aspects of this Arab prince's life. So he lives in Abu Dhabi and the United States, and when the prince and his entourage come into town, Robert is the one that rents the 30 or 40 cars and gets the hotel rooms and so on and so forth. And Robert, who used to be Robert, called me and he said, Leon, 20 years, clean and sober. And it all began with you praying for me at that drug rehab center and you continuing to pray for me. So those are the type of, I could tell you a hundred different stories like that. But those are the stories, uh, Steve, that do last forever. Because when you touch one life like that, then it touches the wife that he married and touches the children that he's now raising and and so on and so forth. So to me, when a life is changed, that's greater than any Oscar, Academy Award, Emmy, or Grammy, and it does last forever.
0: I'm so glad you... Wanted to add that story, in. thank you. Uh, that that's quite a story.
2: I've enjoyed our time together. You stay in touch with me. All right, see. God bless.
0: Uh, just thank you again. I, I'll always cherish our conversation.
2: You read, your rescue? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Is that true? The
1: FBI
2: is credited
0: the Texas Rangers with the rescue.
2: That's absolutely correct. Can I have another picture? Why not, Ranger? You feel good, sure. picture.
1: and Beyond Podcast, created, produced, and hosted by actor and writer Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for listening.